All right, so tonight we will continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And again, if you guys want to t turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll be specifically looking at verses 21 through 26 tonight. And um, just kind of get, let's, let's, and I haven't been in here with you guys, so I don't know exactly, you know, what you guys have talked about, but let's just kind of recap the Sermon on the Mount for just a moment. What, what is, what's going on? What have you guys been talking about? You guys help me. What is, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, what is that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a sermon. Jesus had, you know, in, in chapter 4, he had just selected his, some of his disciples. He's, he's, he's beginning his ministry in Galilee. And the scripture says that at the beginning of, of chapter 5, he, he looks out and he sees the crowd. He sees this multitude of people who want to hear him speak. So it says he goes over to the, to the side of the mountain and sits down and his disciples come over and he begins to teach. Like you said, it's, he, he starts this sermon. And, and many people feel like this is a very radical sermon. Jesus is saying some things that are really rocking the boat, right? And there's a sense in which they are very radical. Um, this, would, this would have been a shock to, to a lot of the people who were in, in the sound of his voice that day. Uh, and the sermon um, was really intended for those who were being misled by the Pharisees and the scribes, and then certainly there were followers of Jesus there too. So this sermon has implications for both groups of people, those who know Jesus, those who are in a faith relationship with him, and those who are not. And Jesus, like I said, Jesus was saying some pretty radical things. He was saying something like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek, gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Those sound like strange blessings, right? So Jesus is, is, is coming at this from a different angle. He's called the people who are listening, those who are following him, to be salt and light. And we have to remember um, that Jesus is not giving an outline of things that we do to earn favor with God, to be in the kingdom. He's saying this is what someone who's already in the kingdom looks like, right? This is what a, a follower of mine would look like. And, and as you guys have been t working your way through this sermon, uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys spent some time on verse 17. Jesus said he did not come to destroy the law, to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it. Okay, that's going to be a very important part of our lesson tonight. And then I think last week you guys probably camped out and spent some time on, Matt, on chapter, on, um, I'm sorry, verse 20, where Jesus said, And I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that must have floored the people who heard that. Why, why would that have just shocked them? Why would that have been shocking? Because they were viewed as impossible. Right. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most, I mean, they thought they had it going on, right? The people who observed the scribes and the Pharisees would have thought, these guys never do anything wrong. And now Jesus is telling us, we got to be better than those guys to be in the kingdom? This is, this is shocking what Jesus is telling us. This is an incredible shock. So tonight, I'm going to... I printed, I went ahead and I know some, most of you have your, your Bibles, but I, I printed these out. We, 
we like to teach here at Crab Apple from the ESV, so I've, I've printed our, our passage tonight from the ESV. I like the, the New American Standard, especially when I'm studying, so I've, I've printed that there. Some of the language, some of the, the uh, translation sometimes just seems to hit it a little bit better for me. So I've printed both there, and, and you know, we can use that as we move through the lesson tonight. So when we get to our lesson tonight, and as we look forward to the, next, to the coming weeks in, in the lesson, Jesus is going to say, you're going to hear Jesus say this. Okay? Jesus is getting ready to say, you have heard, blah, 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 blah. He's going to say it six times. In verse 21, he says, you have heard, you shall not murder. Verse 27, he says, you have heard, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 31, he says, it was said, and then he goes on to talk about divorce. Verse 33, Jesus said, again you have heard, and he talks about false vows. Verse 38, uh, he says, you have heard, and he talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then verse 43, you have heard, and he, and he says, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus is going to take these six things, and he's going to relate it back to how your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. So in these, in these six um, examples that Jesus is going to give us, two of them, verse 21 and 27, murder and adultery, obviously come from the Ten Commandments. Those are, those are principles contained, or, or commandments that, that Moses got on Mount Sinai. Uh, divorce and false vows. Certainly um, telling the truth is, is contained in, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, those are general principles from the law of Moses. Uh, and then eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Those are broad principles about mercy and love. And so Jesus is going to work his way through these in a basic prog- progression to talk about you know, just basic human life. It gets a little bit deeper as he talks about the love of human life and then the deepest when when he commands us to love our enemies. So we we begin this new section tonight, and Jesus is emphasizing the divine standard for living in in his kingdom. I will um, remind you guys a couple of times tonight, and in verse 17 we've already talked about it. Jesus clearly said that he's he's not changing the Old Testament commandments. He's not giving us anything new, uh, and, and we'll need to keep that in mind as we go through this tonight. But the, but the big point tonight is that righteousness that God requires is internal. We're going to see how, that that's internal. Let's read some verses. Who had 1 Kings 8.39? Okay. So the, the, that scripture clearly tells us that God's looking on the inside. He knows our hearts. Remember, we're talking about an internal requirement for righteousness. First Chronicles 28, 9. And you, Solomon, my son, 
know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will find you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Okay, another reminder that God sees our thoughts. He understands our intentions. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Okay. So it says God is, is looking for those whose heart is blameless. Again, it's an internal righteousness. Uh, Proverbs 16, 2. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Okay. So God can see and, and know our motives even, what's on the inside. So God is concerned first and foremost for what we're like on the inside. Finally, uh, Mark 7, 20 through 21. Jesus went on and said, what comes out of a, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, for from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside and make a man unclean. Okay. Where do all those evils come from? From the inside. Out of the heart of the man. And then what's the first thing he lists there, Brian? Out of the heart of the man comes evil, evil thoughts. Thoughts. Wow. Okay. So, the um, God is is obviously very concerned about our inner purity. Uh, Psalm thirty four eighteen through nineteen. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He delivers those who are discouraged. The godly face many dangers, but the Lord saves them from each one of them. Okay. Psalm 51, 16, and 17. Is that you? It was also me. Okay. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what God is concerned about, again, is on the inside. We've plain, seen plenty of scriptures tonight that that reinforce that. Now the Pharisees of Jesus' day had totally perverted that. They turned it upside down. They had made uh, keeping the law uh, a thing unto itself. They had perverted the message and, and twisted the intent. Now how did that happen? How did, how did they do that? Um, most of you probably know, you know, in the early 16th century, uh, even in, in the Christian church, uh, just because Latin was used as a language, and it was not a language that, that people readily knew or, or spoke or, or even read. And so the messages uh, that were given in, in Latin, they, they were impossible for the people to understand. And, and they didn't have copies of the scriptures for themselves to check. And, and, you know, that's one thing that's important today. When you listen to Pastor Jerry on Sunday morning, you, you get your Bible out and you check and you make sure 
you know, that he's saying the right things. Any, any pastor that, that stands before us and preaches, we're, we're called to hold them accountable. Um, but the, but, but in, during those times, they couldn't do that. The language was, was just uh, foreign to them, and, and so they, they were unable to, you know, to, to verify that what was being said was the truth. And so the people had to, they had to take the teachers, the leaders' word for it. So if they said the Bible said this, that's what the people came to believe was said. In, in a similar way, that's kind of what happened to the Jews. During the, the exile in Babylon, they, they lost some of their ability to, for, for their own language. The Hebrew language just kind of uh, went away from them, for lack of a better word. And so they, they had a, a difficult time understanding. And, and during Jesus' day and, and prior, they were depending on what the rabbis told them the scripture said. And so there was this uh, tendency for, the, for the, the rabbis and the teachers to, um, to twist and to add things on to, to what God had said. And so they had, um, they had made it something that was impossible for the people to, to live up to. And so this is the scene that we, we see them coming into as Jesus is delivering that sermon that day. Um, Jesus, in, in, in his sermon, in this passage today, um, he's outlining five principles. And the first is that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law. The law points us to God's character. When we, when we read something in the law, it should point us to God. It tells us how holy God is. Completely points us to his character. The law is positive and negative. So from a negative standpoint, uh, the law prevents sin. But it also points us and promotes us to righteousness. The law is not an end unto itself. Uh, we don't serve the law. We serve a holy God. So the law helps us to glorify God. Uh, another thing that Jesus was pointing out is that God alone is capable of judging man. It's only God that can see to, the, to our heart. Only God knows what our thoughts and our intentions are. And the Pharisees had, had obviously distorted this. And the last thing is that um, every human is commanded to live to the perfect divine standard. And so we, we sometimes gloss over that word perfect. I can remember, um, and some of you know Diane's testimony. Diane was, Diane's one of the best people I know, and she thought she was too. Um, and she was comparing herself to other people. And then there, there was a day Jerry was preaching a sermon. We had been here a couple years, and she, he preached a sermon and, and made a little statement in the middle of this sermon that just caught her attention. And he said something like, in order to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. Diane knew she was a pretty good person, but she also knew she wasn't perfect. And so what Jesus is pointing to us to in this sermon today is what it takes to go to heaven. Uh, who had James 2.10? I did. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Okay. It's another important thing to remember. Whoever keeps the whole law, if we were able to keep every part of the law except for one little bit, by God's standard, we've broken it all. I'm thankful that's one of the verses we teach the little boys and girls downstairs. That's one of the very first verses they, they memorize. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So all of that was introduction. Now we get to the lesson. And so tonight we're going to look at who is a murderer. So let me read the passage 
And I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it from the ESV. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go before... Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say unto you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay? <clears throat> Who can tell me what the first recorded cr crime in scripture is? Cain killed Abel, right? In uh, Genesis 4-8, we read that, that Cain killed his brother Abel. And since that time, murder has been a part of human existence, right? Found a few statistics. Did you know that in the United States every year, there are 25,000 murders every year? That averages out to about 70 per day. Can you imagine that 70 people today lost their lives at the hand of another person? In 2018, California led the, the U.S. with murders, with 1,739 murders. Any guesses where Georgia fell on the... California was number one. Who wants to guess where Georgia was? So. Pretty good guess. Did you know? Georgia ranked sixth at 642 murders in 2018. Vermont, by the way, if you want to move to a safe state, move to Vermont. They only had 10, which is kind of surprising. Chicago gets a lot of bad press, right? There are uh, murders every weekend in Chicago. As of this past Monday in uh, 2019, there have been 424 murders just in the city limits of Chicago this year. When, when you add that up, it's incredible, right? 25,000 murders. That's, that doesn't even take into account you know, abortion, suicide, and then obviously there's some accidental killings that occur in there that, that those numbers don't take into account. In our <clears throat> scripture tonight, uh, Jesus said that you have, uh, he refers to the ancients, or in, in our, our uh, translation he says, uh, you've heard it said of those of old. And those of old is obviously referring to the scribes and the Pharisees who've taken um, the law and have twisted it and, and uh, devised their own traditions. They had encumbered the law uh, with more rules. Uh, the Bible tells us that Cain knew that what he had done is wrong, what was wrong in killing his brother. He knew that he had broken a divine commandment uh, because he sort of argued with God uh, in verse 13 of, of chapter 4 about his, his penalty. He didn't argue that he should have had a penalty, but he was arguing that it was too severe. By the time Noah, uh, uh, Noah comes on the scene, Genesis 9-6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God, has, for God made man in his image. So now we start to see you know, why killing another person is, is important. Man was created in the image of God, and, and so there, there's an attack on, on God when, when that happens. And then obviously Exodus 13, 20, 13 <clears throat> says, as one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Or as I learned it in the King James, thou shalt not kill. 
Now, we, I guess we should probably point out that not every form of killing is prohibited, right? Is that true? Who had uh, Numbers 35, 30 through 31? Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer. Only the testim only the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Okay. So that's just one example. I mean, that's a, a justified killing. God has ordained that a person who takes another man's life, he's he's his life is to be taken from him. So that's a a form of killing that's not prohibited. There are others, you know, there's just warfare, uh, self-defense, and, and then accidents. Uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, both are full of names of people who've, who've committed murder. And Jesus' listeners, as, as the people who were standing around him that day as, as he spoke, would have known the seriousness of this sin. But Jesus is, is about to take it up a notch. He's about to take it to another level because Jesus is now making the statement that no one is truly innocent of murder. You see, he's, he's equating anger with murder. Now, we were talking about school earlier, right? <coughs> What's that? Railroad track. <laughs> equals, okay? So if I put this, I don't want to put that. Uh, this looks like math. I don't want to get it too hard. Uh, okay? If I put this on the other side, those two things are the same, right? If I have this or this, it doesn't matter. They're both identical. Paul, can you slow down? I'm a Georgia fan. <laughs> I don't know if anybody can go that way. What Jesus is saying now is that. Wow. Jesus is saying that in one way or another, all men are murderers. Let me read that again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And Jesus' words immediately shattered any illusion of self-righteousness. His listeners would not have thought themselves guilty of this sin, but he's pointing out that they are. And the people were likely shocked. And this was different than the, the, from the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching because uh, they said that anyone who commits murder uh, will, will be liable to the judgment. Some translations use the word court there. And, and what they had devised was, was a civil court system where if so someone was accused, they, their, their case would, would go and be heard, and they would decide what punishment. And, and uh, that, that certainly fell short of, of God's intention. The tradition that the, the scribes and Pharisees had, had um, brought about does not recognize God's holy character in the law. It does not recognize that it is dis disobedience to God's law. They did not realize they were desecrating God's image in which man was made. 
they did not allow God's role in dispensing judgment. In essence, they took God completely out of the picture. So Jesus is saying, and, and he says, but I say to you, and we have to remember, he's not changing the Old Testament law. He's not creating anything new. He's contrasting truth with their tradition. And Jesus is saying murder is not just a physical act, but it's an attitude of the heart. John MacArthur said, in a statement that may have shocked his hearers more than anything he had said yet, Jesus declares that a person guilty of anger is guilty of murder and deserves a murderer's punishment. So we've really gotten to the heart of the matter. Very few people, I'm hoping nobody would raise their hand in here and say they've physically killed another person. But if we apply the standard that Jesus used, we would all have to raise our hands and say we're guilty of murder. We've all been angry with someone. We've all been hated someone. We're all murderers. But we have this tendency in ourselves to, to, to justify it, don't we? There's a story told of, a, of an old gangster in 1931. His name was Two Gun Crawley. Does anybody know the story of Two Gun? Good. <laughs> Two Gun Crawley. He was a bad guy. He murdered countless people. At the time of his capture, he had just been in a gun battle. He had killed uh, some, some people who were nearby, actually killed a policeman. He holed himself, he, he, he barricaded himself up into a house and got into a gun battle. He, he actually sustained a wound that, that ultimately killed him. And so when the police went in, he had a note taped to his body that said, under this coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would never hurt anyone. So we all have this way of, of, of justifying our actions. It kind of reminds me of um, the story Jesus told, the parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the publican in uh, Luke 18. It says, And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When my grandmother passed away, we were, my family had gathered together and we were sitting around telling stories. And uh, I had one aunt that lived right next door to my grandmother. And she was telling us that night as we were sitting around just sharing some stories. She said, you know, I always, I always thought it was kind of interesting when we called her grandmother. When grandmother prayed, she said, you know, because grandmother never went anywhere. She never did anything. And yet when she prayed, she prayed very similar to this, this tax collector. You know, she confessed every sin in the book, you know, and, and my aunt just thought it was kind of humorous that here was a, a lady who was basically confined to a house that never did anything. But the truth of the matter is, grandmother had, that, had it right. She, she had the right attitude about her own sin. And so the main point, you know, the, the thing that we need to take away from this is that the best people are so sinful that they're in the same bo boat as the worst people. And so Jesus gives us three examples in this passage. And the first is anger. We've talked about it. Uh, we said that not every form of anger is, is 
or, or not every form of anger is, is prohibited, just like not every form of killing is prohibited. Jesus himself exhibited righteous anger uh, when he went into the temple and it was being misused and he, he cleansed, the, turned over the money tables and, and cleansed the temple. Uh, he was right to express that kind of anger. In Ephesians, Paul commands us to be angry but do not sin. So there's some form of anger that's appropriate. Obviously, uh, when God is dishonored, it's appropriate to express that anger. And Paul goes on to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So there's obviously a time frame. This, this can't be an anger that, that extends on and on forever. But that's obviously not the kind of anger that Jesus is referring to here. The Greek word is orgazo, orgizo. Is that right? <laughs> orgizo, to be angry. It refers to like a brooding. Orgazo. A brooding, simmering hatred. Uh, that bears a grudge rooted in bitterness, uh, just a refusal to forgive. It cherishes resentment. That's the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about. This is the anger that Jesus is, is saying is, is liable to go before the court. The second example he gives us in verse 22, uh, and in the ESV it says, whoever insults his brother, the language there is insults his brother, and you probably in your Bible have a footnote where it says the word there is raka, R-A-C-A. Okay. Whoever says to his brother Raka, and the translation we have is insult, uh, Raka is a term of abuse. It's, it's to express consent, contempt. It has no modern translation. There's not an English word that just exactly fits for what it means. It really is communicating more of a tone, a tone. Um, and you're, so you're, you're, you're showing someone maliciousness, derision, slander. You know, you're calling them a brainless idiot, basically. So, and it, and it's, it's very arrogant. This, to use this word would be, a person who did that would be a very arrogant kind of person. John MacArthur tells about a Jewish legend that gives us some insight into to this word. He says a young rabbi who had just come from a session with a famous rabbi instructor was feeling especially proud for he had handled himself well before the rabbi that afternoon. As he basked in his feeling of higher education, wisdom, and holiness, he passed a man who was especially unattractive. When the man greeted the young rabbi, the rabbi responded, You raka, how ugly are you? Are all men of your town as ugly as you? I don't know, the man responded, but go and tell the maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made. So that little story kind of gives us some insight into you know, the, the, the attitude behind calling someone Raka. Jesus said, if you do this, you're guilty before the court. You're, you're worthy to be taken before the court. Now, the court he's talking about is, would be the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. Remember when Jesus was accused? When he was taken to be tried, he was taken before the Sanhedrin. And, and these guys were charged with uh, dispensing judgment and punishment. Okay, so they would take people out into the outside the city walls and stoned them to death. So Jesus is saying to have that kind of attitude is deserving of death. The final example he gives us in verse 22. He says, whoever says, you fool. Now the, the word fool there is moros, and we get our word moron from. In Hebrew, it's related to the word mara, which is to mean godless. And we know Psalm, Psalm 1411 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. 
So to call someone a fool, you're really inferring that they're godless. Okay? And our responsibility is to warn and to tell people about Jesus not to, and to point them to God, not to condemn them. So, so Jesus is demonstrating an increasing seriousness in, 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 this, uh, in this outline here. It starts with anger, which is the basic motivation behind murder. It, it grows to raka, where you're expressing, you know, anger you can, you can keep inside. I mean, I could be angry and you not even know it. But when we get to raka, I've expressed it, right? And then to call someone a fool is to, to judge them as godless. And, and Jesus says in verse 22 that they're deserving of fiery hell. Now, the word hell there is Gehenna which was the valley outside of Jerusalem where they took their trash and they burned it and it burned constantly. There was a smoldering fire there constantly. So Jesus is saying someone who exhibits this kind of attitude and behavior is deserving to be in that, that kind of place. Now those attitudes and, and behaviors affect us. They have an effect on our worship. You read um, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gifts. So the sin of hatred and anger affects our relationship to God. Our relationship with God is affected when we sin in, <clears throat> sin in that manner. Every Jew would have realized that sin caused a breach in a relationship with God. Even, even those of us who are, are followers, who are believers, um, when we have daily sin in our lives, it doesn't, doesn't mean we're no longer followers or no longer accepted, but there is a, 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 a breach in the relationship. Our fellowship with God is not as intimate and as, as close as it ought to be. And so Jesus is saying when you come to worship, you need to make sure that those relationships are right, that your, your heart attitude is, is correct. Um, Jesus says that God's greatest desire is not our sacrifices. Our external behavior is less important than our internal holiness. The point that Jesus is making, that this animosity, this hatred and anger that we might have between our fellow man affects the integrity of our worship. Now this should change us, right? You know, we sometimes, if you're like me, and I'm sure you are, we come into the worship center on a Sunday morning and we're running from Sunday school, we're talking about the football game the next day, we're talking about the weather, we're, you know, you know we're focused on everything but making sure that our heart attitude is, is right as we come before holy God to worship him. To understand what Jesus is saying here should change how we approach worship. I'm hoping that this, this Sunday that would be the case for all of us. The other effect that this has is on our relationship with others. Verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the tradition was that the plaintiff, the person that had been wronged, could go and get the guilty party and take them to court. Now, on the way to court, if you could arrange some kind of agreement, if, if, James, if I had wronged James and James has taken me to court and, and I'm in his car and we're driving to the judge, 
if I work out a deal with James, that's fine. But once it got to the court, once the judge started hearing the case, James and I couldn't work it out anymore. Jesus is using that example to tell us uh, and, and to teach us that we are to make effort without delay to make sure that our rela relationship with others is right when we've wronged them. Now, the previous example, when, when Jesus was talking about his brother, that, that command would have been for the guilty and the innocent. See, we don't know which brother had done something wrong. We just know that uh, your brother had something against you. You might have been in the right, but Jesus is commanding you to make it right before you worship. In this case, we know we're the guilty one. We're the one that is being carried to court, and the command is still to make it right, to avoid the chastening of God. As we summarize our lesson tonight, we need to realize that no one has fully, no one has full right attitudes. We all deserve God's wrath. We're incapable of appropriate worship before him. And sin is a big problem. But we need to remember why the law was given in the first place. Who had Romans 3.20? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh to be So we were given the law so that we would understand what sin was. We would know what it is. It's what gives us our, our knowledge of sin. The law acts like a mirror, right? When, when, I, when we have the law, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing who you truly are. Who had Galatians 3.24? So then, the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, as it is in some translations, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay. So the law was given to lead us to Christ. The law was given to show us that we have a need. The people who were listening that day, us tonight as we're reading this, we should be floored with the fact that we're murderers. We're guilty. There's nothing we can do that's right. We need a Savior. And thank, thankfully, God has provided that. The law shows us our need for a Savior. So as we leave here tonight, I think it's important to think seriously. Know, if you're a believer and if you're in a saved, saving relationship with Jesus, then it's important to reflect on what we've been saved from. You know, this, is a, this whole sermon that Jesus preached is a discipleship for those of us who belong to him. We should be striving to, to live up to the, the calling which he's placed in our life. But if you're here tonight and you're not saved, you're not in a, in a relationship with Jesus, then think seriously about about the, 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 the separation that exists, even for the smallest sin. As I said before, the best person is in the same boat as the worst person. All right, any comments, questions? Thank you, guys. Sam, you want to pray for us and we'll go? Oh, we thank you for opening your heart and word to us this evening, Father. Us as indeed with us day after day and step after step our control our thoughts and our hearts and may they be dedicated to you in Christ Jesus name we pray Amen. Amen. thank you guys thank you Paul